Genesis 1 presents the steps God took in creation. To recap, God took steps to form that which was tohu and bohu, or unformed and unfilled, and then proceeded to take that which he formed and filled it. Thus, on day 1 through 3, God forms creation. And on days 4, 5, and 6, God fills creation. So we can basically take chapter 1 and break it down as follows. In Genesis 1, 1 through 5, we have day 1. God forms time, space, matter, darkness, and light. In Genesis 1, 14 to 19, we have day 4. God fills space with the sun, the moon, and the stars. In Genesis 1, 6 to 8, we have day 2. God forms the expanse or atmosphere. And then in Genesis 1, 20 to 23, we have day 5, where we see God fill the sky with birds and water, with fish and sea creatures. Then in Genesis 1, 9 to 13, we have day 3. God forms the dry land, vegetation, plant, and trees. And then Genesis 1, 24 to 31 culminates with day 6. God fills the land with mammals, reptiles, and humanity. Now, the last time we looked at specifically day 2, Genesis 1, 6 through 8. And today we will look at day 5, Genesis 1, 20 to 23. But to recap, uh, one of the questions that came up last time was, when did God create the angels? Obviously, Genesis 1 mentions nothing about the creation of angels. And so I just want to go through and recap. Obviously, God created all things within the six days. So angels had to be created within those six days of creation. And again, those six days of creation are six literal 24-hour solar days. We've debunked the gap theory previously. Satan did not corrupt God's original creation. He didn't cause God to create the current creation. Uh, so that's been debunked. Where do we then fit these angels into the picture? And the answer comes to us again in Psalm 148, 1 through 5. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him all his angels. Praise him all his host. Praise him sun and moon. Praise him all stars of light. Praise him, highest heavens, and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created. Notice here, creation and angels are commanded to praise God. Why? Because he commanded, and they were all created. So angels are included in the various parts of creation. In fact, we can even get more specific uh, based on Job 38, verse 4 to 7, and Psalm 104, 2 to 5. And in when Job 38, it tells us that uh, the angels were rejoicing when the foundation of the earth was laid. When did that happen? Day 3. That's when God set the boundaries of the sea and brought forth the dry land. At the, on the day 3, the angels were there, they were present, and they were rejoicing in what God was doing. So obviously we know they were created before day 3. Psalm 104 tells us, or gives us rather, a chronological progression where we have day one, God covering himself with light. Day two, God stretching out the heavens, the clouds, the wind, and establishing the earth upon its foundation on day three. Following the descriptions of day one and two is the mention of the angels here called the winds and flaming fire. So we see here in Psalm 104, the angels are created after day two, but 
as we know from Job, they're also created before day three because they're there on day three praising God. Now, in to recap, Genesis 1, 6 through 8, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let us separate the waters from the waters. Uh, God made an expanse. He separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. So the last time we looked at what God formed on day two, he formed the heavens, Genesis 1, 6 through 8. And so we see here God creating uh, the heavens by separating the waters into the two parts. So at the end of day one, the earth was covered with the primeval world ocean, i.e. the deep, which the Holy Spirit was hovering over, intending to form and to fill. And uh, th that forming begins uh, here with the cleaving of the waters into the waters above and the water below. In doing so, God shaped the earth into a spherical object. And so we went through and we discussed what the firmament was. And that Hebrew term, rakia, rakia, the expanse, better term than firmament. Firmament's a Latin rendering of the Hebrew term. But the idea of this expanse is a layering. And that's what we see in our atmosphere. There is a layering of gases in the atmosphere. So the atmosphere is made up of the troposphere, then the stratosphere, then the mesosphere, the thermosphere, and finally the exosphere. And so there is an expanse. There is five prevalent layers uh, that form what we call the atmospheric heavens. Now, when God created the heavens, he not only created the atmospheric heavens, which are the waters above, but there is beyond the atmospheric heaven, there is the stellar heaven. And the stellar heaven is where the uh, uh, planets and stars and suns and such things exist. And then beyond that, there is what is called the third heaven or the divine heaven where God dwells. So the waters above specifically refers to the atmospheric heavens. It's the place where water vapor gathers in our atmosphere, where clouds are formed, and where they fall to earth as some form of precipitation. We also debunked the canopy theory, this idea that the uh, waters gathered above formed a canopy around the earth, producing a greenhouse effect that was later broken open in Genesis chapter 6 to provide rain for the flood. You know, some believers have this idea that there were no clouds or rain prior to the flood. The scripture says nothing about that, okay? And the absence of a statement doesn't mean that there was no rain. We can't base and build doctrine upon silence, okay? Uh, that's, a, that's a faulty argument. To argue from silence is fatal. And I pointed out several problems with this canopy theory. Number one, it contradicts the clear teaching of Scripture. All right, the clear teaching of Scripture is that God created all things. Uh, all things includes clouds and rain. Uh, also, uh, Psalm 148 tells us that uh, the waters above uh, will last forever. Now, if, the, if this waters above is a canopy that was destroyed at the flood, then it didn't last forever, and therefore God lied. Well, that can't be. So that's a problem with the canopy theory. Two, the canopy theory does not pass the scientific method. Okay, this idea that this canopy would protect us from harmful ultraviolet rays uh, doesn't hold up scientifically. Water vapor does not prevent 
or it does, rather does not provide sufficient shielding against ultraviolet rays. And third, we said that a water canopy would have cooked the earth rather than provide for a perfect environment. So this canopy theory does not work. Simply the waters above refer to clouds. When God separated the waters, he created the clouds. Job 38, verse 8 to 10 is very clear. In fact, we see uh, there in Job 36, 27 through 28, what we call from science the uh, hydrologic cycle. He draws up the drops of water. They distill rain from the mist, which the clouds pour down. They drip upon man abundantly. And so God created clouds and rain on day two. So we have the waters above, and then we have the waters beneath. And the waters beneath will ultimately be formed into the seas and the lakes and the rivers and so forth that will come. At this point, we have a primeval world ocean, the depths that are covering the earth. But when God brings forth the land, he's going to then put boundaries upon the waters beneath and form them into seas and oceans. And so we have then in day two, God forming the atmosphere and the waters, the waters above and the waters below, the seas. Now let's brings us to day five, Genesis 1, 20 to 23. Now let's begin in verse 20. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. There's that word expanse or firmament. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the water swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters in the sea. Let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. So if day two is God forming the waters above and below, day five is God filling the waters with living creatures and sea monsters and the sky or the waters above with birds. So day five, God filling the waters with living creatures and sea monsters and the sky with birds. So here we have Genesis 1, 20 to 23, day five, filling what he formed on the second day. And he fills the waters with living creatures, sea monsters. Notice he says, let the waters teem with swarms. Let the waters teem with swarms is not a command for the waters to develop fish and sea creatures. Literally, the command can be translated this way. Let the waters be filled with swarms. So the Bible does not convey a evolutionary idea that uh, these things came up out of the water and began evolving, okay? God commanded this waters to be filled with swarms. And swarms, sares, refers to aquatic creatures found in large numbers, such as a school of fish. Furthermore, he says the waters were filled with swarms of living creatures, nephish hayah. Nefesh Hayah. Genesis 1.20 is the first time in the creation narrative that living creatures, Nefesh Hayah, are created. Now, the term Nefesh denotes something that has a soul. And creatures with souls are identified as being animated. They move about from place to place. They're self-aware. That is, they possess some degree of intellect, emotion, and volition. 
So for example, plants, flowers, trees, bushes, things of that nature, are not nefesh because they are neither animated, they're not self-animated, nor are they self-aware. When God created nefesh hayah to fill the waters and the sky, the sea and the air creatures were animated and self-aware. And notice what as well what the text says, that God blessed them. Them refers to the creatures that filled the waters and the sky. What did God bless them with? He blessed them with fertility. Be fruitful and multiply. Procreation among animated life is far different from the reproduction among plant life. Among animated creatures, procreation involves the process of mating. Fish are going to mate. Birds are going to mate. God declared the capacity for sexual reproduction amongst animal life as a divine blessing. And the sea creature procreates in the waters and the air creatures procreate on the earth. Now this living creatures in the water refers to every kind of fish and animal that lives in the water. Every kind of fish includes those with fins and without fins, with scales and without scales. Listen to Psalm 104.25. There is the sea, great and broad, in which are swarms without number, animals both great and small. Leviticus 11.9-10. These you may eat, whatever is in the water, all that have fins and scales. Those in the water, in the seas, or in the rivers, you may eat. But whatever is in the seas and in the rivers that does not have fins and scales, among all the teeming life of water, and among all the living creatures that are in the water, they are detestable things to you. Now, we're using the dietary law there that God gave in Leviticus. We're using that to establish what every kind of fish and animal that lives in water. Anything that's self-animated and self-aware in the water, whether it has fins or not, whether it has scales or not, is created by God here on day five. Now, furthermore, in Genesis 1.21, he created the great sea monsters, the Gadol Tanin, Gadol Katanim. Interesting phrase. It can be rendered as dragons. It denotes enormous reptiles. This would include for example, ichthyosaurs, aquatic reptiles that resembled the modern porpoises and grew up to 43 feet long. Also, it would include pleosaurs, another aquatic reptile with enormous a head, about 12 feet long, short necks, tear-shaped bodies that grew up to 50 feet long. Another animal this would include as the Gadoltanim, or the great sea monsters, would be the plesiosaurs, the aquatic reptiles with short heads, long necks, and flat, wide bodies, 40 to 50 feet long. Also, another uh, great sea creature or great sea monster would be the mosasaurs, snake-like bodies with giant skulls, long snouts, and about 30 feet long. Now, as an interesting fact, non-mineralized collagen and carbon-14 have been found in a mosasaur fossil. Now, finding non-mineralized collagen and carbon-14 is interesting because non-mineralized collagen and carbon-14 cannot last millions of years. More specifically, non-mineralized collagen degrades into dust after 30,000 years, 
and carbon-14 completely decays after several thousand years. Nevertheless, according to the evolutionist, the Mosasaurus supposedly lived 70 million years ago. But science tells us that non-mineralized collagen can't last beyond 30,000. Carbon-14 can't last between several thousand years. That fact tells us that the fossils of this great sea creature called the Mosasaur can't be any older than several thousand years. So these creatures were on planet Earth at the same time human beings were on planet Earth, just as God says in Genesis chapter 1. I want to take a moment and talk about another sea creature that the scripture mentions, the sea monster called Leviathan. In Psalm 74, the psalmist describes how God is more powerful than the sea monster, Leviathan. Verse 13 to 15, Psalm 74 says, You broke the heads of the sea monsters, the Gadoltanin, in the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You broke open springs and torrents. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Now, the reason for God's power, for showing God's power over the Leviathan is due to the surrounding pagan nations, the Persians, the Babylonians, the Syrians, Egyptians, and Greeks. They all worshipped these sea monsters. And so the psalmist sets out to show that God is more powerful than the sea monsters. Literally, he's more powerful than the false gods of these nations. In Psalm 74, 15, when he says, You broke open springs and torrents, he's referring to the universal flood. In those days, God crushed the heads of Leviathan and fed it as food to the creatures in the wilderness. That animals were consuming animals narrows the context down to a post-flood world. Okay, Animals didn't eat other animals pre-flood. All things changed after the flood. So these leviathons, these great sea monsters, were still present in a post-flood world. And some 1,450 years after the flood, those, these sea monsters, these gadoltanin, these leviathons, are still present in the psalmist's day. Now, let's be clear what the leviathon is and isn't. The leviathon is not a mythological creature. Prophetic narratives are always based on reality. In other words, an earthly type or picture, a real pick, earthly thing, is used to describe something in the future. And we see this in Isaiah chapter 27. Isaiah uses the Leviathan in his prophetic utterances, of specifically Isaiah 27, to indicate something about Satan. So he's comparing Satan to Leviathan. But it's, Leviathan is a very real creature familiar to the people of Isaiah's day. Let's read Isaiah 27 verse 1. In that day the Lord will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. Now again, Isaiah 27 is a prophecy regarding Satan's final destruction. And here the prophet portrays Satan as a Leviathan, uh, the fleeing serpent. 
Now, in all ancient Middle Eastern myths of Leviathan, the Leviathan is demigod is defeated by the high god. And these myths are perversions of the biblical text, but they do provide historical records of various people groups having common knowledge of this creature. Interestingly, Isaiah indicates that the Leviathan is a dragon, which explains to us why Satan is portrayed as a dragon in Revelation. Revelation 12, 2 to 4, 7, 9, and 17. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels warring war against the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. And the great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Revelation 13, 1 and 2 and 4. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast. Revelation sixteen thirteen, And I saw coming out of his mouth, the mouth of the dragon out of, and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. Revelation 20 and verse 2, And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, the Greek term for dragon here, dracon, depicts a serpent-like creature with feet and wings. Notice as well that the Bible portrays the dragon as having seven heads. Listen, Psalm 74, 14, the Lord crushed the heads of Leviathan. Heads is plural, Leviathan is singular. In other words, this Leviathan creature has multiple heads. And what makes it more interesting is that the Sumerian tablets, the oldest Middle Eastern documents, refer to Leviathan as having seven heads. Just like what we see here in Scripture. Satan is portrayed as Leviathan, this seven-headed creature. Now, the Bible also gives us a physical description of this uh, uh, sea monster, this sea creature, in Job 41. Job 41 asks, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Now, some have made this incredible claim that the Leviathan is nothing more than a crocodile. Friends, Leviathan, the great sea creature, is not a crocodile. First of all, crocodiles are successfully hunted. The Leviathan is not successfully hunted. Job 41, 6 to 7 and uh, uh, 26 to 30 says, Will the traders bargain over him? Will they divide him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? The sword that reaches him cannot avail, nor the spear, nor the dart, nor the javelin. He regards iron as straw, bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones are turned into stubble for him. Clubs are regarded as stubble. He laughs at the rattling of the javelin. He un his underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads out like a threshing sledge on the mire. Now, folks, a crocodile's underbelly is very soft and vulnerable. But the Leviathan's underbelly is described as being like armor plates. 
Job 41.30 says his underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads out like a threshing sledge on the mire. Folks, crocodiles are not sea creatures. The Leviathan lurks in the sea. Job 41, 31 to 32 says he makes the depths boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a jar of ointment. Behind him, he makes a wake to shine. One would think the deep to be gray-haired. Others think that Leviathan is an elephant, a rhino, and even a whale. Folks, listen to Job 41, 34. He looks on everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of prides. Listen, elephants, rhinos, and whales are not impervious to capture. The Leviathan cannot be taken captive. As Job 41, verse 7 says, Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? His skin is covered with these close-fitting scales with sharp projected points around its belly and underparts. So much so that Job 41, 13, 23, and 30 says, Who can strip off his outer armor? Who can come within his double mail? The folds of his flesh are joined together, firm on him and immovable. His underparts are like pot shirt. Folks, animals, elephants rather, rhinos and whales are mammals. They do not have scales. The Hebrew language also has specific terms for crocodiles, elephants, and whales. This creature has its own name because it is something distinct. Now, check this out. Leviathans exhale fire and smoke. Job 41, 19 to 21 states, Out of his mouth goes burning torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils smoke goes forth, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coal and a flame goes forth from his mouth. Now, various cultures worldwide have historical records of giant fire-breathing dragons. These are not the things of fairy tales here, folks. The fact that so many different cultures have the same story makes it difficult to believe that these tales are simply myths. I want you to consider the universal flood of the Bible. There are over 200 different historical accounts of a universal flood from as many cultures or people groups, many of whom have never read or heard the scriptures. Now, we know the flood is not a myth. And again, the fact that we have it testified in other cultures proves it's not a myth. So why should a giant fire-breathing dragon be any different? You say, well, how can a creature spew fire? Well, folks, there are creatures in existence who can create chemical reactions. Look at the lightning bug. It produces chemicals that, when mixed, produce illumination. Or the electric eel that can produce a shock of up to 650 volts, which is five times the strength of an electrical outlet. Or how about the bombardier beetle? When it senses danger, can internally mix two enzymes to produce a spray from its body of scolding 212 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, if God can create a creature that can produce light, produce electricity, and produce a fluid 212 degrees Fahrenheit to shoot out of its body, then creating one that exhales smoke and fire is not difficult at all for God. So God created some mighty creatures to fill the seas. Now, shifting gears, the second command on day five is a command bringing birds into existence. The creation of birds before land animals flies in the face of evolution. Evolution claims birds evolved from land animals, but here the Bible says the birds came before the land animals. Listen to leading evolutionist John Rubin. 
He says the earliest stages in the derivation of the avian abdominal or air sac system from a diaphragmatic ventilating ancestor would have necessitated selection from a diaphragmatic hernia, i.e. hole, in taxia transitional between theropods and birds. Such a debilitating condition would have immediately compromised the entire pulmonary ventilator, or excuse me, ventilatory apparatus and seems unlikely to have been of any selective advantage. Now, along with the creatures of the sea, God also created birds. They were not created out of the water. They were distinctly formed out of the dust of the ground, which God designed on day three. Genesis 2.19 says, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. Let's take a moment and consider the term bird. Hope. Hope. It's a winged or flying creature. So it's a very broad term. Let birds fly literally is let winged things fly. So the term hope classifies based on locomotion, not mammary glands or feathers. So in other words, winged creatures would include all feathered birds and non-feathered birds, as well as bats, which are winged creatures, but flying mammals. The uh, uh, flying reptiles, think of like a pterodactyl, a butterfly, flying beetles, flying insects, anything that had wings would have been part of the hoop, the flying creatures, the birds, quote unquote. Leviticus 11 follows this classification. Listen to verses 13 to 23 of Leviticus chapter 11. Moreover, you shall detest among the birds, the hope, they are abhorrent not to be eaten, the eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, the kite, the falcon, even the raven in its kind, the ostrich and the owl, the seagull, the hawk, the little owl, the comorant, the great owl, the white owl, the pelican, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron, the hoopoe, and the bat, all winged insects, that walk on all fours are detestable to you. Interesting, the word winged there for winged insect, hope, is the same term translated earlier as birds. Yet these you may eat among all the winged insects which walk on all fours, those which have above their feet jointed legs with which to jump on the earth. These of them you may eat, the locust and its kind, and the devastating locust and its kind, the cricket and its kind, the grasshopper, and all other winged insects which are four-footed are detestable. So, the word birds here is a very generic term for any winged creature. And the command to reproduce after their kind should be understood in light of Leviticus 11. The term kind means that eagles reproduce eagles, owls reproduce owls, locusts reproduce locusts. Owls never produce eagles, eagles never produce owls, locusts never produce bats, bats never produce owls. Now it's important to note that scripture includes bats among the winged creatures created on day five. Why? Because the evolutionists perpetuate the idea that the bat evolved from a rodent. Rodents, according to scripture, were created on day six. Now listen carefully. Of the over 1,000 bat fossils found, not one demonstrates an intermediate creature between bat and rodent. The oldest bat fossil, dated interestingly enough by evolutionists at 50 million years old, looks the same as a bat today. God created winged creatures to fly in the expanse, to fill the atmospheric heavens. He designed these winged creatures specifically with flight in mind. Look at the seagull. The seagull's bones are hollow, but strengthened by braces within each bone. 
These braces provide minimal weight, but maximum strength. The seagull is also perfectly balanced. The majority of its weight is centered under its wings. The strong muscles in the seagull's chest pull down the wings, while a pulley system pulls the wings upwards. The wishbone, the wishbone created by the fusing of the collarbone, is sturdy yet flexible and keeps the force of the wing muscle from crushing the bird's chest cavity. As well, the placement of the feathers on the seagull's wings allow for a lift and to control navigation. Did all this somehow evolve? No. This is the plan of an intelligent designer, and his name is Yahweh. Also, let's be clear, the dinosaurs did not evolve into birds. Yes, while I may enjoy Jurassic Park and enjoy it as a movie, enjoy the book, listen, dinosaurs did not evolve into birds. First, birds were created on day five. Dinosaurs were not created till day six. Second, there is no fossil record supporting a claim that dinosaurs evolved into birds. Evolutionists purport that the Archaeopteryx is a transitional fossil between reptilian and avian kinds because it has teeth and finger-like appendages on its wings and long tail. Again, we have birds today that do not have teeth. There are extinct birds, though, such as the Heparosornis, which did have teeth. And as far as these finger-like appendages, ostriches have fingers on their wings, as does the juvenile Hudson, which it uses to climb trees. Third, scientists are now classifying the Archaeopteryx as an avian rather than a reptile. Listen to former professor at Washington University School of Medicine and biologist David Menton. He says having a true bird appear before alleged feather dinosaurs, no mechanism to change scales into feathers, no mechanism to change a reptilian lung into an avian lung, no legitimate dinosaurs found with feathers are all good indications that dinosaurs did not turn into birds. The evidence is consistent with what the Bible teaches about birds being unique and created after their kind. So friends, when you look upon the fish, and you look at the birds, you should be reminded of who is in control. Job 12, verse 7 to 10, asks this question. Now ask the beast, let them teach you. And the birds of the heaven, let them teach you. Speak to the earth and let it teach you. Let the fish of the sea declare to you, who among all these, who among the birds, who among the fish, do not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? The hand of the Lord has made them, and whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Each and every time we peer out and look upon a bird or we see a fish in the sea or the water, the lake, wherever it may be, we ought to stop and consider it is God who made them. They know it. We should know it. Job's claim here that he is wiser than his supposed friends because he knows something about the wisdom and power of God simply from studying birds and fish. What has he learned? He has learned from studying the fish and the birds that their life and death are in God's hands. Now, if the life and death of the creature are in God's hands, then how much more is human life and death in God's hands? A second thing Job learned is that even the fish and birds know that calamities are not always the result of sin but they're always from the hand of God. Isaiah 45 verse 7 says, The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity, I am the Lord who does all these. 
folks. When it appears like the wicked are prospering, when it appears like the righteous are suffering, I want you to remember, God has brought this to pass. God has brought this calamity in your life. Just as he brings calamity into the lives of the birds and the fish. But take heart, folks. Listen to the words of Isaiah 41, verse 20. He does this so that we may see and recognize and consider and gain insight as well that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Folks, just as the birds of the air and the fish of the sea know that God created them, so we should know God created us. And just as they realize that calamities come from the hands of God, so too the calamities that come into our life are from the hand of God. But know this, God is righteous, he is holy, and he will make all things right in his time. Let's pray. Father God, creator, we come into your presence through the matchless work and name of Jesus Christ, your son and our savior. And Father, we wanna praise you for the fish of the sea. We wanna praise you for the birds of the air. Father, when we take a moment to, to consider the birds and the fish and to see how fearfully and wonderfully they are made, we, you know, to, to, to try to even begin to uh, attribute their creation to something else is to rob you of your glory. Indeed, they are intelligently designed because God, you are an intelligent designer. We lift you up and praise you as the creator, the creator of all things, including ourselves. I pray, Father, that we could take a moment and, and just watch a bird or, or look at a fish and Lord, take the time to consider they're fearfully and wonderfully made by you, by your hand, by your command. And Father, if you took such time to make them so intricately and so delicately, haven't you done the same for us? Father, those simple little birds and fish know that you created them. And yet, Father, so often, most people don't believe that you created them. More disturbing, Father, many Christians live their lives as if they haven't been created by you. Father, forgive us of that. Forgive us, Lord, of not taking the time and to look at your creation and let it push us to worship you. Father, forgive us, Lord, for not viewing ourselves as creatures and you as our creator and worshiping you as such. Father, I ask and pray that, Lord, as we see life and as we see death, we will understand it's in your hand. That, Father, we will glorify you for that. That, Lord, as well, when calamity comes, and many calamities have come, but when more come, Father, let us understand it's not necessarily because of sin, but because your hand has caused it, you have created it, you have brought it into our life for a purpose. May we seek and search out what that purpose may be. Father, I pray that from this day forth, we would go forth glorifying you, particularly as we see a bird or as we see a fish. May we stop May we pause and we may, we, may we praise you for your goodness and your creative power. We pray in your son's precious and holy name and give you all the thanks. Amen.